Now, here they were to stay in a boarding house for two days. When a woman then called for him and took him back for a night to her house, which sounds a lot kinkier than I think it's meant. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we are looking at Fusilier Joseph Purvis of the 7th Battalion Royal Northumberland Fusiliers. Not a regiment I know much about, to be honest. Nor me, actually. And I had to go and have a considerable look into this, because obviously I try and look at all about our, our individuals and where they, where they came from and, and what ended up happening with them. They're basically, it's a machine gun battalion. Okay. And this particular battalion went to France in October 1939, and they were assigned to three corps, which was attached to the 51st Highland Division, which I think you will be familiar with. Vaguely familiar? I thought you would be. They were actually stationed on the Maginot line at the start of the war, but they got encircled as part of the retreat to Dunkirk, which Mm -hmm. is how our Joseph Purvis became, um, unfortunately, captured. But he he actually wasn't new to the army, though, because whilst his report says that he was a minor in peacetime, he'd actually joined the Territorial Army, and he'd been in since 1934. And he was from Northumberland. You know, he was in Ashington. I looked it up, actually. His house still exists. It's slightly modernised now. It's got lots of solar panels on it, but mm. um, yeah, the address given his report is still there. So I thought it was quite interesting to see. Mm. But yes, yeah, so he was obviously territorial army, and then uh, wars declared, and it, it's deemed that they're going to be dispatched off to France. And the, their story is not unusual. You know, they were having to obviously retreat with advanced things. They they got back to uh, Saint Valery on Col. And couldn't get any further because it's obviously on the coast. And we've seen in a couple of other examples when they've retreated to the coast and yet there's been no uh, no boats to take them away. So unfortunately in this situation, they were stuck and they were forced to surrender to the Germans. So it doesn't say so much in his report because his report is very to the point, I think we could say. Yes. In that we got captured and that's it. But there were actually 80 of them that made it back to the beach and couldn't get any further from there. So there were 80 prisoners of war taken on that one day. Right, okay. That's basically all I could find on him. There doesn't seem to have been much in the way of fighting that I could see from the reports. No, he seems to have had a quiet start to the war, despite having been in, the, as you say, the Territorial Army since July 1934. So he'd served a good six years by this stage. And I would imagine by the June 1940, he would have probably been active and involved throughout most of the phony war by this stage. Yes, yes. So they were, they were certainly, they, they were sent out, I think, in late September, early October 1939 to the Maginot Right, okay. Obviously, that's a long way back from where things were happening until the rapid push yeah. uh, through the early 1940. Yeah. So, having been captured, he was first taken to Stalag 20A and he was there for a couple of months. He was there from July to September 1940, having been captured on the 12th of June 1940. So, imagine there was also, as we've seen in previous escapes and previous reports, they were usually rounded up and put into a local holding pen, for want of a better description, and then marched 
wholesale back to Germany. If they were lucky, they got a train. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, we have seen, as you say, that there wasn't an awful lot of provision for captured military personnel at Mm -hmm. that point of the war. The the front was moving very quickly as they advanced. And the expectation on both sides was that would be that it was a long, protracted war. And the Germans had certainly made very little effort or consideration for taking vast swathes and huge numbers of prisoners of war. So having taken about a month to get to his first camp, he was there for a couple of months there and then he states that he was sent from there to Stalag 9C which is Bad Sotsa but he only spent one night there however I think it's, it's one of those as, as we know he, as you said earlier he was a fusilier in the Royal Northumberland Fusiliers so he is in effect the rank of private he is of a junior rank yeah which, which explains why we don't find much about him because we've commonly seen that the lower yes. ranks have very little information about him Exactly, but of course, as we know, because he is of a junior rank, he is therefore put to work. Mm. So while he only spends one night in Stalag 9C itself, the reason for that is because he is almost immediately sent out to satellite camps attached to Stalag 9C, and therefore ends up in a number of different working camps, including one in Volkerode, Molsdorf, Romhild, and Merkers. However, it was from the camp at Volkerode that he made his first escape attempt. And he was to make a couple, actually, throughout the entirety of his time as a prisoner of war. And his first attempt was in September 1941, so a little over a year after first being captured. Now, I have to be honest, I'd never heard of Volkerod, and I had to look it up to find out where it was. Mm-hmm. And it is about as central Germany as you can find. Oh, really? If you were to put a dot right in the middle of Germany, it mm-hmm. won't be a million miles off. Oh, wow, okay. This place. So it's about halfway between Leipzig in the east and Dortmund in the west. Okay, Almost in a parallel line between the two. Little to the south. It's not far off the rare area then. Not at all, no. So it's very, very central Germany. Okay, yeah. And he was working in a salt mine at the time of his escape. Now, I don't know if you've ever actually been in a salt mine. Do you know what? I think I actually have. I think I've been to one in Austria. There was in, a visitor centre. I have been to one in Poland. And so I've been to the Velichka salt mine in Krakow. And while I'm not saying that it's directly comparable, because similar to yourself, it is now a visitor centre. Hmm. And actually, I thoroughly recommend it to anyone who's listening because it is a fantastic visit. Uh, Absolutely fascinating, not least of which is because there is actually a cathedral built into the mine and there's carvings in the wall carved into the salt. And it's all done with perspective. So it, it looks like it's got depth and actually it's only about an inch deep. Wow. It's absolutely incredible. Thoroughly recommend it. There's an amazing, amazing rendition of the Last Supper carved into the salt walls of this cathedral. However, the reason why I raised that is to actually, having been in a salt mine, there was a couple of observations that I would make as to what I suspect the experience was like. Now, I couldn't seriously claim to know what working conditions were like. However, it is extremely dry Mm. and extremely warm. Mm. Not a good combination for working conditions. No. And while he was a miner prior to the war, I can't imagine that the coal mines of Ashington and Northumberland were a like-for-like comparison with the salt mines of central Germany. No. So while he was working in the salt mine, he decided to escape with another private... Now, he says he can't remember his name, but that he was from a London regiment. And it's quite clear that they'd actually spent a lot of time preparing for this because they had been for several weeks putting food aside and hiding the food in the baths where they washed themselves after their shift down yep. the mine. Yeah. Now, I'm quite impressed that it wasn't found in those several weeks, but 
Nonetheless, they had something of a decent stash of food by the time that they decided to escape from the mine. So having left the mine at around about 9 o'clock at night, they went and collected their food from the baths, and from there they climbed through the window and over a fence without any difficulty and walked for several miles to some woods close by. And it was while they were in the woods that they managed to finally remove the working overalls that they'd been wearing. So having made the escape and got away and removed their clothes, they actually stayed in the woods for several hours until four in the morning uh, the following day. So the reason for that was to try and get enough light so that they could start taking bearings with the compass that they brought with them, and which they, he says that had been made in the camp. And from that bearing, they're able to start heading south with the intention of making for Switzerland. Yeah, makes Cause sense. Because of course, if you're in central Germany, Switzerland is basically due south. Absolutely. So having taken their bearing, they were to manage to make an escape for several days. And in fact, spent three days and nights walking south, keeping to the woods and fields. So they avoided the roads, but they were keeping themselves hidden. Now, we do know that travelling by wooden field was a fairly slow process because you're effectively on uneven ground soft ground quite often yeah if you're going through a field it could be plowed so that can be very slow going although it's possibly a more direct route than a road might take it's a much much slower way of travel yeah but hopefully less people traffic i mean other than farm hands and things like that yeah but an opportunity for bicycle theft wouldn't go amiss no no and uh, alas they, d- they seem not to have thought of that route which probably makes them in the minority hmm. amongst escapers So having travelled for three days going cross-country, after the third day, his companion started to feel ill and unfortunately was forced to go to the nearest farm and give himself up. Now, I did think that was actually quite a risky move to take because while perfectly understandable that if he's unwell and unable to travel, you would give yourself up, given that Purvis was still in the vicinity, in the local area... And the Germans might well have assumed that they were travelling together. Exactly. Even if they separated long before getting to the farm, I would have thought that they would have still done at least a rudimentary search to see if any others were in the area. So it is quite a bold and risky move to give yourself up in such a way. However, it clearly didn't come back to bite him on this occasion because he continued to journey alone for a further ten days. And he states they avoided all towns and slept in woods. However, on the 10th day, he was discovered while sleeping in a wood by a stag hunt party. Oh, that's unfortunate. Now, I'm assuming this is not a pre-wedding knees up that found him, but instead a group hunting for deer. Yes. A fair assumption, I think, in uh, wartime 1941 of Germany. So having been captured, and of course they would have been armed, by definition they would have been armed, so he would have been armed and surrounded, he was put into a military prison in a town nearby, which again, he can't remember the name of. Shame, so we can't see how far he actually made it on that particular escape attempt. Exactly, exactly, and he he seems to struggle recalling these details throughout the report, because he forgets the name of others that he's escaped with as well later on. So he spent three days at this military prison, and then from there he was sent back to Stalignancy at Bad Solza. And he was interrogated there and remained there for eight days. From there he was then sent back to a camp at Holsdorf, and again interrogated for a further three weeks before being sent to a camp at Romhild. So they've clearly taken the slight frighteners at the fact that he's got out and got out for nearly two weeks, because travel with his companion for three days and then travel by himself for ten days. So he's done a full 13 days Mm. out of the camp. So they've clearly taken quite an exception to this, I would say, because he's been thoroughly interrogated, and he doesn't give any indication as to how much he's given away, if at all. 
Nonetheless, he wasn't to be discouraged because he was to make a second attempt in December 1942. Now, again, this is a full... Just over a year, isn't it? Yeah, a year and three months after the first attempt. So while he may not have been put off, and we don't know if he, he made any attempts in the meantime where he didn't get out of the camp, he's just mentioned the ones where he did. But clearly he has taken some time to prepare for his next escape attempt or else has just waited for the right opportunity and it wasn't to present itself for another year and a bit. So in December 42, he was sent to a working camp at Merkers. So Merkers is also in central Germany, very central Germany again, not a million miles away from the previous place we discussed. And he states here that the conditions here were appalling and the mattress and bed clothing were full of bugs and lice. We complained to the authorities, but nothing was done. I can't imagine why they wanted to escape. No, no, I mean, it sounds wonderful. Mm. But the protecting power should have done something if they if they raised it in the proper manner i mean because camps were inspected they were but he simply says that he complained to the authorities that doesn't necessarily mean that was the protecting powers true so he says there were 47 men in the camp and at the end of two days there we all decided to escape which tallies with the standard of conditions that they were experienced which does actually suggest that they were truly appalling conditions Mm. They discovered that a part of the wiring around the outer perimeter was weak, and so they worked at it with pickaxes whenever they had a chance. And on the night of the third day after they had arrived, all but 12 of the men got out, so 35 men have managed to escape. That's quite an impressive number for one escape. Yeah, not bad, especially given that they'd only been there for three days. Mm, And that's almost half of the total number that got out in the Great Escape. So it's got got to be up there in one of the biggest numbers of people to get out in one hit. Certainly a significant number, yeah, definitely. Mm. So he travelled with a private Dukes, and he says Regiment Unknown and two other men, again, names unknown. And they were making their way to Fulda. Now, Fulda is kind of south-west. I know Fulda, yeah. Got stuck in a massive traffic jam there. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds charming. It was awful. No, and it actually came at the end of a day when I'd driven down, funny enough, from Colditz, and I had to go down to the Rowan Mountains, and there was a particular village I had to go to. It turns out there were two different villages on each side of the Rowan Mountains, and I went to the wrong one. Good. So I then had to then go back through the Rowan Mountains to the other side from there, and then I was supposed to be heading back to Dieppe, and a colleague of mine was actually getting an aeroplane out the roof of a castle in Fulda so he said I need a hand I dashed all the way up there and I got to just outside there and he went it's all right we're heading off as well and I then got stuck in traffic and sat for most of the rest of the day and then had to do a mad dash literally to Dieppe and ended up with four speeding tickets and many hundred pounds worth of fines that would actually have paid for a really top quality hotel for the night rather than rushing to get back to Dieppe so that's my lasting memory of Fulda. So Fulda's southwest of Merkers, and unfortunately, by virtue of having escaped in December, they were stuck in a snowstorm a couple of days after escaping and were recaptured after two days. Now, he states that they'd reached the railway siding and climbed up into an empty goods wagon, which shortly afterwards was moved into a nearby station where they were caught, which is actually quite unfortunate. I mean, that's just luck of the draw, really, that rather than they made any errors or mistakes and got recaptured. However, four guards and an officer came for them and marched them the three kilometres to the town where they were forced to march with their arms above their heads. Now, if they lowered their arms at all, they were hit on the finger ends with rifle butts, while the two men behind them kept prodding them with their bayonets. So they're getting fairly harsh treatment simply mm. for being recaptured. Yeah. And it was to get worse, because when they arrived at their destination, they were made to stand with their faces to the wall for another hour with their hands still above their heads. Now, 
that gets pretty painful when you lose all the blood rushing away from the ends of your extremities. It gets very painful. And also the muscle mm, fatigue. Cramps and everything else, yeah. yeah. And from there, they were then marched to a house where they were made to strip while their clothing was examined. Now, being stark naked in the middle of December doesn't sound like a lot of fun. So they were then put into a civilian prison first for a couple of days and then sent back to Merkers. Now, this is where the treatment gets extremely harsh because the 12 men who hadn't been able to get out of the camp were severely beaten up and eventually all of the escapers were rounded up. And the punishment for escaping was to work an extra two hours a day digging trenches. Now, this was over and above the eight hours a day they were already working. Mm. And I guess, you know... It's cold. They haven't spoken much about food, but if the conditions within the camp with regards to flea and mattresses and things like that were pretty poor, one can imagine that potentially the food supply was pretty poor as well. Yes, in fact, he does go on to say that our food was very bad during this time. We received two meals a day consisting of dry bread and coffee for breakfast and sauerkraut or potatoes for the evening meal, which doesn't sound particularly good for your constitution. No, no, it doesn't. So we get to our third and final escape. So in February 1943, so only two months after the previous escape attempt, he and Gunnar Martin of the Royal Artillery planned to escape again. They collected food for six weeks by taking a sandwich to work with them each day. They would then hide that sandwich in the salt factory in which they worked. So again, they're working around, based around the salt mine and a salt factory presumably attached to the said salt mine. Now Martin was working on a railway a quarter of a mile away from the salt mine, which is convenient. We have seen before where either working on a railway or knowing people who worked on a railway was a helpful connection to have. So they decided to wait for a misty morning, which in February doesn't seem an unreasonable expectation. And having found said misty morning, they could escape and hide independently in the woods close by for a day. So they intended to meet at midnight that night at the power station and to then hide themselves in the salt wagon bound for Switzerland. So on the 29th of April 1943, they decided to put their plan into effect. So we're talking about six weeks after the initial decision to try again in February 43. So having used that six weeks to save up food, they then decided to escape at the end of April 43. That morning, Purvis went to the latrines with two other men while the guards waited outside. And he states, My two companions covered me while I eluded the guards by going around the back of the latrines. I had intended to hide under the salt tanks, but seeing several German civilians there, I changed my mind and ran straight for the 12-foot wire fence. I seized the top of the fence and heaved myself over. As I reached the top, I was seen by an engine driver who shouted at me. I dropped down on the other side and ran hard for the woods where I remained in hiding for the rest of the day in spite of search parties with dogs. Good going. Yeah. Good going. I mean, the casual, a 12-foot fence, and I ran for it and grabbed the top. Yes. Suggests someone fairly athletic. Yes, certainly strong. Yes. And physically capable of pulling himself up. At midnight that night, having evaded the search parties with the dogs for the entire day, he returned to the power station and waited until 01.30 hours for Martin, but he did not turn up. Therefore, Purvis returned to the factory unobserved, collected his food and stole a bottle of coffee from the civilian's canteen, which was unlocked, and then returned to the woods. He then stayed in the woods for the whole of the next day, so this is now the 30th of April, and once again returned to the power station at midnight. He waited until 2 in the morning and then went back to the woods for the whole of the next day. So he's now hung around for two or three days. Mm-hmm. So we're on to the 1st of May now. And again, he returned to the power station that night in case Martin should show up. So he's showing a fair amount of loyalty to his mate. Mm. You can only assume Martin was held up rather than... Just left him. Yeah. Yeah. And so having, having waited three days and still no sign of Martin, 
Purvis decided to climb over the fence into the salt factory, which was not guarded, and hid under a weighing machine. He was to remain there until 09.30 hours the following morning, so we're into the 2nd of May now, when the Germans went to the canteen for breakfast. He then left his hiding place and made his way towards the salt wagons. He chose one that was marked, which was marked destined for Italy, and got into it, covering himself with salt. Half an hour later, the guard came along and sealed the wagon. So having hung around the camp for four days, which is ultimately what he's done, because he escaped on the 29th of April and he eventually got himself into a salt wagon on the 2nd of May. Mm. He's clearly had plenty of opportunity to go by himself should he wish to have taken that opportunity, but he's decided not to, to try and wait for his mate to join him. That's really good. Yes. And and having avoided the dogs and everything else, because yeah. as I said, he's close to the railway line, so he stayed in the immediate local... Yeah, and of course Martin worked on the railway line, so it's yeah. not like he didn't have an opportunity, presumably. Yeah. And he escaped by himself, so he climbed the fence by himself, so it's not like they knew Martin was planning to escape with them. So we don't know what happened to Martin, but we now find ourselves in a situation that on the 2nd of May, Purvis has now got himself out of the camp. And onto a salt wagon bound for Switzerland. So not long after that, the wagon was hitched to an engine and they started to move. They reached Fulda shortly after that where they remained till nightfall. So for the next couple of days, they travelled between 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock at night. And then again between 2 and 6 o'clock in the morning. And they slowly made their way south, travelling through Mannheim, Freiburg, before eventually reaching Basel which is, of course, in Switzerland on the 6th of May. So it's taken them a further four days to reach Switzerland within this salt wagon. Now, four days in a salt wagon covered by salt does not sound like a lot of fun to me. No, but he doesn't mention anything about any checks or anything like that throughout the whole trip, does he? Not throughout the trip, no, but he does say that once they reach Basel, he says that here the trucks were inspected and then resealed. Right. So having made his way south through Germany towards Switzerland... And having arrived in Switzerland, he then states that I was desperately thirsty by this time, which I can't say I'm hugely shocked by. Four days in a salt truck. Exactly. And had almost decided to risk getting out of the wagon when we started moving again. After two hours, we stopped again and I listened to the people talking and heard only German spoken and so I remained where I was. We continued our journey for another hour and stopped once more. This time I heard both German and French being spoken and left the wagon through a small window. So clearly by the virtue of the fact that both German and French was being spoken, he knew for definite he was in Switzerland by this point. Yeah. And better yet, far enough away from the German border for it not to be just German that was spoken. Absolutely. So having left the wagon through a small window, he approached the railway worker and asked first in English and then in German for something to drink. He was taken to a hut where he was given some wine, and while he was drinking the wine, the Swiss military police turned up. He was then given some food and taken to a nearby town, which he says was not marked on the map, where he spent the night in the local prison. And then from there he was sent on to Bern, where where he contacted the British legation. He then remained in Switzerland until July 1944, so he was to spend more than a full year in Switzerland. And he worked in the press department of the British legation for a few months before then staying on Lake Geneva until July 1944. It doesn't sound too unpleasant. No, I can think of worse things to do than to spend a year in the middle of a war in neutral Switzerland. But of course, as we've seen, you are in Switzerland. That's not, you might be safe, but you're not home. And the road ahead is not as simple as one would think. No, indeed. And by definition, you're in a landlocked country with no flights in and out. 
and certainly no ships in and out either. And you're surrounded by belligerents in the war. So that is part of the reason why they sent them westward towards Lake Geneva. So of course, once you're in Lake Geneva, you're much closer to the French border. Absolutely. And on the 24th of July, he was to leave Switzerland accompanied by two Belgians and would to make his way towards Toulouse, arriving there on the 29th of July, so five days later. Now here they were to stay in a boarding house for two days when a woman then called for him and took him back for a night to her house, which sounds a lot kinkier than I think it's meant. Because, of course, by this point, he is now travelling down one of the evasion lines. Of course, yes. And so he's, in effect, being treated as a parcel, as they used to call them. Yeah. So being passed from one house to the next, one safe house to the next, making their way south towards neutral Spain. So the day after that... A man came and collected them and took him to a house two miles outside of Toulouse where he was to then remain for a further two days. And he was then told it was impossible for him to be sent back to the UK and that the only alternative was to join the Maquis. Now, of course, in July 1944, we are talking about a full nearly two months after D-Day. So, of course, France is now a live front again, having yeah. first been captured when France was a live front. He now finds himself back in southern France when the war is active again in northern France. Absolutely. So it does make some logical sense for the resistance to suggest that he joins them to continue the fight. And so he was taken to a nearby station and met an officer of the Maquis who took him to a small town, which at that time was actually held by them. From there, he was then taken to another small town, which was southwest of Toulouse, and he was to remain fighting with the Maquis until the 30th of September and took part in four battles with them. And on the 30th of September, he managed to make contact with a British officer, and therefore, the next day, on the 1st of October, he left the Maquis and made his way to Marseille by American transport. And there he met up with the first contingent of repatriates from Switzerland and reported to a British officer. And so he left Marseille on the 5th of October, bound for the UK, arriving in the UK on the 4th of November. So nearly a full month later, 1944. Yeah. And unfortunately, as we've seen on a number of other occasions, his is a story that ends there. You know, I did an awful lot to try and find. And whilst we found summaries of his escape and there are various social media groups that discuss the uh, 7th Battalion. The and the photo of him, to be fair. Yeah, and the photo of him. Yeah, I've seen group photos of him. But he does seem to disappear into the midst, which is unfortunate. So Pres- Presumably he returned post-war to the northeast and returned to mining. Uh, one would assume, but yes, we don't know if he ended up back going in, into the regiment again. I mean, they were obviously still fighting, mm-hmm. and there was still fighting to be done, but he had obviously spent the large majority of the war in captivity. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I could not find anything at all. So if anyone out there does know anything more, I would love to find out, because it's 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 not uncommon for us to have nco escapes Mm -hmm. you know we've covered it before but it is very rare to find much detail of their lives thereafter but i couldn't even find an obituary for him you're right it's it's not uncommon for escapers of this rank to have very little publicly available detail for us to find but as you say if anyone does know anything further we would love to hear from you because i thought he had a brilliant escape i mean to hang around for four days is gutsy yeah he clearly showed from his previous two escapes that he did have a great deal of bravery and strength actually well let's face it he might not have been fighting but he had a fairly harsh war i mean Mm. it's physically demanding working Mm -hmm. in a salt mine and he pretty much worked in a salt mine every day from his initial capture to when he escaped. Exactly. And there's a poetic justice to him making his escape to Switzerland in a train wagon 
full of salt and I, I think having clearly worked for three years in a salt mine I quite enjoyed that little detail that it was a final farewell to his German captors. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcast, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.